from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Lisa Bradley. Lisa lists a wide variety of interests, including sports, dancing, photography, and writing novels. Her bachelor's degree was in journalism and art, with minors in agriculture, economics, and sociology. She has three grown sons with her husband of 28 years, but her three horses get most of her attention back home at the ranch in Prescott, Arizona. Lisa's first published novel, Abby Wise, Away, is available from national and local bookstores. We talked about her novel during the interview and share excerpts from the novel as well. I started the interview by asking Lisa where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Fortunately, I feel lucky to not have moved around a lot during that time and so I was really rooted you know in my community and my school and had known these friends ever since kindergarten type of situation and graduated from uh, high school there in 1976. Mm-hmm. And what was spiritual life like growing up? Well I grew up Episcopalian. I wrote about this in my book because I really became disenchanted with the shallowness of that life. I I look back on it and I realize now that my soul was yearning for more substance and I just wasn't finding it in the highly ritualized and, you know, it was kind of all about who knew who and the cliques and the fashion and were you properly dressed, you know, and all these things that really don't matter for the soul and, and... I I became quite a serious seeker at about age 13. Hmm. That's unusual. Mm Mm-hmm. So where did that seeking lead you when you were 13? Oh, I love talking about this part because what happened is that at that time, I was daring to defy my parents and stay home from church. And yet once that battle was fought... And I had won the, you know, right to stay home. I was like, well, what do I do now? And I picked up a Reader's Digest. And in that Reader's Digest, that one, that one first significant Sunday, was an article condensing Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on interviewing people who had been declared clinically dead and then come back to life. And this was brand new research at the time. This was really groundbreaking, controversial stuff. Now it's seeped into public consciousness, and everybody's heard about the tunnel and the, and the you know, ocean of light and the, the love that they see there in that ocean of light and so on and so forth. But this was new to me, and, and because I was in a spiritual frame of mind, like I'm not going to go to that shallow place, I reject that, I was open in a kind of a reverse way. And I read that account, and I thought to myself, I believe this. I'm only 13, but I can see that from my Christian upbringing, this is the pearly gates, even though it may look like an invisible wall or a river, but it's a stopping point. 
and your life review, that's got to be judgment day. And God is love, God is light, and everyone says they see him off in the distance. And, you know, it, it just is a scientific backing, shall we say, substantiation for what I had been taught happens after you die. And I thought, I believe in this. It's not a church. I can't go join it. But whatever I do find eventually needs to agree with this. And so my search began to take me first to other Episcopalian churches and then other sorts of, you know, broader denominations like Baptist and and Evangelical and so on and so forth. And then I, I, my circle kept getting wider and wider, and I wasn't finding anything that really that really struck me as that article had. And by the time I graduated in 76, I was still in full-on seeking mode, and I even did a fast in high school. And my peers teased me and said, you're not fasting, you're dieting. And I said, no, I'm fasting. And they said, well, that would imply that you're on some kind of a religious you know, mission, and I said, yep. And I didn't feel obliged to explain it, but I was quite firm in what I was doing. I did it in order to um, bring blessings down, let's say. Uh, I knew enough of the Bible to realize that you need to make a sacrifice in order to get a benefit. So I fasted and kept on with my search, and my parents had asked me in the end to find something even if I wouldn't agree to go to their church anymore. And so when I started college in the fall of 1977, uh, I went to school at the, a small private college called Doan College in Crete, Nebraska, <laughs> very small college. And I was in full search mode by then, too. Believe it or not, there was a full local spiritual assembly of nine adult Baha'is in that tiny town. <laughs> so, Lisa, why don't you explain to folks what a local spiritual assembly is? That is the local governing body, and it uh, occurs wherever there are nine or more adult Baha'i believers, and it's the local governing council. So, in that tiny town, there were enough adult Baha'is to actually form a local spiritual assembly, which is very unusual. <laughs> when I kind of ran across the Baha'i faith in my search, I lucked into finding the Baha'is there in Crete, Nebraska, and, and it was a completely wonderful time. I remember those days with great fondness. So did you become a Baha'i at that time? I pretty much did. I kind of blew them away. I <laughs> I phoned them. I had fetched the number from a uh, a friend in college who uh, I had confided in, and he said, oh, I know some Baha'is, and he provided me with a phone number. I called the phone number and said, do you have anything I can come and, and join or sit in on? And they said, yeah, come down Sunday morning. And I was so excited and eager and came down Sunday morning and knocked on the door and a very nice lady answered and let me in and I said so where is everybody and she said well my husband's off picking up these other people and the other people are running a little bit late and so on and so forth and we'll just we'll, we'll wait and they'll be here and my second question out of my mouth is how do you join the Baha'i faith wow 
<laughs> and she, I could see that this wasn't a common question because of the look of shock on her face. Mm. She said, well, what a person does is know first in your heart that Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, came and is who he says he is and brought some laws that we should try to obey. And I was like, yeah, I you know, run across a book or two and it's it's pretty good and I actually had known some Baha'is earlier, but it, it wasn't a, a, a driving force in my life. But it, through my investigations, I remembered them and things that they had said. She said, and then after you've admitted that in your heart or recognized that in your heart, then there is a registration, just one card to sign and so that we can be in touch with you and be in touch with each other. And I said, may I see the card? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was no longer than five minutes inside her door. <laughs> and she said, ah, uh, just a minute. And she fetched a card, and I signed it on the spot. So by the time the rest of the group arrived, she said, um, everybody, there's a new Baha'i we have to welcome. <laughs> and they said, they said, allow a paw. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> they said, well, it's, it's called the greatest name of God. It means, oh, thou glory of glories, roughly. And I said, oh, okay, I'm sure I'll learn that and a whole bunch of other things, and I did. Mm. So um, what what was it about the Baha'i faith that uh, attracted you to it in your search? You know, one of the first books that I did get my hands on in my search was the book Paris Talks by Abdu'l-Baha, who's the son of Baha'u'llah, and Abdu'l-Baha was, of course, the leader of the Baha'i faith for roughly 20 years, 30 years? Help me out, Warren. How about, long was About 30 it? years. About 30 years. Yeah. And Abdu'l-Baha said, you know, gave many wonderful talks and said many wonderful things in his talks. And these talks were recorded. And so when he was in Paris, a, a book was compiled of his talks. So that's why the title is Paris Talks. And I read the first line in that book, and when I read that, just kind of this dam of searching and wondering and worrying and doubt and trial and error burst all over that page. And I knew I had found something important, and I finished the book just to make sure but the first sentence I went back and I memorized because it's still such a uh, guiding light to me. And that first sentence is, when a man turns his face toward God, he finds sunshine everywhere. And I just thought, this is so awesome because the other churches I had tried and the other faiths, eventually I went to Hare Krishna and all kinds of things, you know. My circle kept getting wider and wider. But, but in all of that searching, I kept finding things that just didn't ring true. They weren't really any better than the what are you wearing and who do you know and do you sing correctly at the proper time sorts of things. I was missing that deeper component about spirit and love and God and how to connect my soul to my maker. I didn't have any words for it at the time, but now that I can look back at it 35 years later, I can name what that yearning was. And what was it? Well, yearning to connect my soul with 
with its maker, wanted spiritual food, not just surface trappings. So, Lisa, when did you get the writing bug? You know, I've just always loved to read, and that's the first sign of a promising writer, (laughs) I say now in my talks. I was always a big reader. I was one of those that my mom would come in and catch me reading by flashlight under the covers long after lights were supposed to be out. So I began to dabble in writing for my own enjoyment, even back in elementary school. And then when I had to declare a major in college, I actually kind of had a vision of me being a journalist, a reporter, in a busy newsroom. And the first year that I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I went as an undeclared major and just took the general requirements. But midway through the first semester, I had this really strong vision. And it seemed to make sense. It seemed to um, capitalize on who I was and what I could do and my interests so far. So I went ahead and finished out that year at Doan College, but then I switched to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and declared my major as journalism. What I really wanted to do was major in photojournalism, but the University of Nebraska-Lincoln did not have a photojournalism major, so I double majored in journalism and art in order to take all the photography courses offered on campus, and it turns out to have been a really wonderful thing because because that writing experience has been crucial, but the art component has also been crucial to everything I've done. What field of writing did you get into after you graduated? I went from Lincoln to Kansas City, and I was a reporter for a weekly agricultural newspaper. I have a strong love of horses and the country and all things natural and nature-oriented, so that was a pretty good fit for a while. But then there was a change in management, and I was let go, and then I was a portrait photographer. And it's really interesting because when I look back, I see that all along, everything in my life was setting me up to experience the things I need to experience for what I do now, which is write novels, because it's very difficult to write things you don't know about. There's also a Baha'i writing that I ran across when I was quite young, and it says, in part, true reliance is for the servant to pursue his profession and calling in this world. And I thought, oh, that's cool. That tells me that there is such a thing as a calling. I mean, you hear about these things, but you don't know if they're really real. And a profession, which, because it was listed separately, might mean those are two different things. Like, what if you have a strong hobby, but you can't make a living out of it? You know, so I pondered those things. And then for years and years and years, I wondered, well, what is my calling? What what am I supposed to do? And now I can say all of those jobs, all of the experiences, all the moving around that I did was so that I would have this a reservoir of experiences and characters and settings to use in my writing. The book you brought to my attention was Abby Wise, and then there's a colon and A-W-A. I'm not sure how you would pronounce the title of the book. Yes, it's a little code thingy. It's pronounced away, so that's Uh... A-W long A. The reason that I named it that, I kept rotating between three different 
words after that colon. One was away, the other was awake, and the other was aware. And after a while, I realized they all three started with that away sound. Mm. So I just took that starting sound, and then I put those three ideas above the title. Because my book is about a 13-year-old horse-loving girl who's suddenly thrown into the far future when world peace has finally arrived all over Earth. Is this your first book? It's my first novel. I've been writing many things for many years, but it's my Uh, first novel, and I am planning a series. So you mentioned that this takes place in the future when world peace is established. Maybe you could provide folks some background on how this synchronizes with the teachings of the Baha'i Faith. Yes, I would love to. It wasn't really my idea to write this book. I was kind of forced into it, and although you didn't ask that question, it, it's germane to, to the question you did ask. I was kind of forced into this <laughs> book writing business, pretty much against my will. I was in Hawaii at the time, really feeling stuck out in the middle of nowhere, raising three young children and taking care of the house and the husband and, and my horses as well, which I was fortunate enough to begin to own at that time out in Hawaii. Gradually, everything was taken away from me. One one by one, I had to cut off contact with my birth family. My job was taken from me. You know, one by one, all kinds of things were cut off until there was really nothing left to do except for to try to write this book idea that had welled up in response to reading the Harry Potter series. And I loved the Harry Potter series very much. I I still do. But there were also things that bothered me about the Harry Potter series. And one of them was that it kept getting darker and darker and darker. Because I read so much, I kind of have gotten to the point where I think, really, do we really have to do ultimate evil takes over the universe fight to the death again? Really? Can't anybody come up with anything different? And... That idea happened in 1999, just before we moved to Hawaii. As time went, that idea of what if just kind of took over more and more of my thoughts. And I began to toy with, well, what do I think? You know, how would I write it if I were going to do this? And it was completely in the realm of, occupying my brain space to keep myself distracted from the other unhappy things that were happening in my life. But after about seven or eight years of that, I realized I had enough to go ahead and and write this book. And there was a day in August 2007 where I sat down at my computer and I said, all right, I'm starting this novel. I don't know if I'll finish it. I don't know if it's any good, but here we go. And so one of the ideas that I had had is that I wanted my character, Abby, to go to a wonderful place where she would learn wonderful, mystical things and be supported instead of like Harry, where he goes to a scary place where people are constantly trying to kill him. (laughs) And I felt like, what if she time travels to the most wonderful time I can possibly create for her? Well, the Baha'i writings, I have to say, enabled me to kind of have cheat sheets for how to create this world of the far future. And what I did was eventually park two of the pages 
from the world, the book, The World Order of Baha'u'llah by Shoghi Effendi, who was in charge of the Baha'i faith after Abdu'l-Baha. These writings kind of give me access to what Baha'is believe is God's view of world peace come to earth. And so I actually have access to what I consider a pretty complete view of the world and in that time. And so I had, of course, been well familiar with those over the years, but now I had to flesh them out. Like, all right, so, you know, in the Baha'i system, uh, it's a loving view. I have to make that point very clear. It's not a forced communist picture at all. It's not what people fear as being the new world order, like you can't do this and you can't do that and you have to march lockstep with all your neighbors. That's not at all what the Baha'i view is of the future. But there is this new world that's envisioned in the writings and it's it's a wonderful time full of spirituality and equality and yet freedom and goodness and you know, it's just this incredible thing. So how was I going to put this into a novel where you felt like you were there? How, what do the people wear? What does the air smell like? What does the sun feel like? You know, all these details. And I had a pretty wonderful time, but it was actually kind of white-knuckle writing more than once. <laughs> Why is that? Well... Because I knew that if this book did what I hoped it would do, there would be a lot of people reading this and taking it pretty, you know, literally like, oh, is this the Baha'i view of how the world is going to be? And it's only just one writer's conception, and yet it has weight. I'm well aware as a trained journalist that when things get put in print, it it has weight to it that a spoken word or a movie might not. So I I took my responsibility quite seriously, and there were some things that I realized I just didn't know well enough to deal with in this book, but with the help of my editor, who's a longtime Baha'i in Chicago, she and I are actually sitting down, figuring out what do we think uh, the elements of that world will be, and the time in between now and then as well. So the Baha'i faith has this construct of two different levels of peace, a lesser peace, and then what Baha'u'llah refers to as the most great peace. And I was wondering if you could, for the benefit of the listeners, provide a short description of what those two constructs are and where does this place your character in your novel? Yes. Well, I'll try. In the Baha'i writings, it's stated that the world will just get so tired of war that the people will insist that the leaders get together and agree that there won't be any more war. And sometimes this is referred to as a paper peace. In other words, it's it's going to be a cessation of hostilities, but... There is a difference, as as wonderful writers about this topic have been aware of for a while, there's a difference between peace and absence of war. So absence of war doesn't mean that people don't still hate each other. 
it doesn't mean that people feel brotherhood for each other. It just means they're not shooting at each other anymore or trying to kill each other. So what the Baha'i faith came to do and what all the world's religions have been talking about all these eons is there will be heaven on earth. There will be peace, love, unity, brotherhood, people looking out for each other, you know, this level of friendly unity. And that's the long-term goal, and that's what, if I can be so bold as, as to label it, the most great peace. Well, without giving away too much for those who do not want the plot spoiled, my character will be time-traveling to a time that I'm going to be attempting to portray the arrival or the accomplishment of the lesser peace when people are so fed up with war and the governments finally get together and and agree to stop trying to annihilate each other. That's going to be, in my guesstimation, that's going to be several hundred years in the future. And then even further in the future, my character will return again to that, what we say, golden age, you know, to that time of, of world peace. She went there once in what I call Book A, the book that's already out and published, Abby Wise Away. And then in future books, Abby will go back to Airden, as I call it. I had to give that, <laughs> that time a name. So we're, we're going to get to visit those different times, God willing, in my, in my series. So let me see if I understand this. So in this first in a series, she starts the time travel at the point at which the Baha'is call it the lesser peace, but it's that period when there's this agreement politically that there won't be any war anymore. With this first segment of your novel, she does traverse time to what we term the most great peace. Almost. She Almost. starts out okay. in America in 2007, and she's 13 years old. And then she time slides to 700 years in the future to the Golden Age in this first book. Mm-hmm. In future books, she will go from Earth to various times, including the time of the Lesser Peace, which I tentatively have pegged about 200, 150, 200 years from now. So the golden age you're referring to is this heaven on earth that the Christians prophesy. Yes, that's how I see it. Would you like to share an excerpt from the book? I would love to. (laughs) This first reading is when Abby is still in America in 2007. She's in a bookstore with her cousin, John, and John's girlfriend, Melissa. Abby stood for a moment, unsure. Something sparkled next to the cash register, a tiny rack of beaded strings that caught the light beautifully. A little sign said they were bookmarks, but you could use them for jewelry, they were so pretty, with three or four beads on each end of a colored string. She fingered those for a moment, then drifted to a collection of miniature books at the end of the counter. On the cover of Zen Cowboy, She saw a funny cartoon of an outlaw sitting in the full lotus position in front of a cow and a cactus. A built-in bookmark ribbon ended in a tiny gold metal boot. 
Abby flipped through the pages and read jokes about moo and moo, cowboys and cowboys, Coens and Cowens. Someone had a great sense of humor, for sure. It was only four ninety-five, but Abby only had about $2, so she put the cute book down reluctantly. Another, even smaller book, Native American Wisdom, contained fabulous photos of Native Americans and even a few horses. As Abby scanned it, her eyes fell upon a quotation that seemed meant especially for her. Quote, I have noticed in my life that all men have a liking for some special animal, tree, plant, or spot of earth. If men would pay more attention to these preferences and seek what is best to do in order to make themselves worthy of that towards which they are so attracted, they might have dreams which would purify their lives. Let a man decide upon his favorite animal and make a study of it, learning its innocent ways. Let him learn to understand its sounds and motions. The animals want to communicate with man, but Wakantanka does not intend that they shall do so directly. Man must do the greater part in securing an understanding. End quote. From Brave Buffalo, late 19th century, Teton Sioux Medicine Man. Abby read this twice. It was amazing. Of course, she instantly knew what her chosen animal would be, had been for as long as she could remember, and she had just seen that there could be actual communication between horses and humans, thanks to Angie the Angel. This wise man was saying that we should study what we are attracted to and learn from it and let ourselves become like that animal or place. This was confirmation. Abby should do what her heart was telling her to. She wanted the book badly, yet after she'd emptied every last coin in her wallet and even dug into all the corners of her backpack, she still had less than half of the $4.95 purchase price, plus tax. Yet she knew she would need the affirmation it provided her. She carefully folded the front cover flap onto that page and carried it in front of her. She didn't want anyone to think she was stealing it, but was unable to put it down. Melissa and John browsed in their separate sections, John apparently in the military section and Melissa in the history section. Abby looked for the animal books, finding equines shelved among the pets. She carefully put her little book on the edge of the bookshelf and examined the titles, delighted to find that she actually owned several. A few others interested her only mildly. She picked up her small treasure and ambled through the rows, looking for anything interesting. She picked up the unfamiliar magazine, Cowboys and Indians. After a few pages, she understood why she'd never seen it before. It featured some of the fanciest furniture, clothes, and jewelry she'd ever seen, all Western-themed. She'd probably never in her whole life get to even put on, much less own, the expensive strands of turquoise and silver, or see, let alone live with, the antler and leather chairs. Every page overwhelmed her more, so she began to turn several at once, past the wine and restaurant reviews and articles about luxury resorts. Then her eyes stopped dead at the gold word Pirelli. There were several small photos. Someone, Mrs. Pirelli, was sitting down in front of a horse she was apparently working with, smiling, holding an orange stick. Other photos showed a man, maybe Mr. Pirelli, working with horses in front of a crowd. Abby's nose nearly touched the page as she scrutinized the miniatures, mining them for information. The halters were the same as Angie's, and the horses did even neater things than Angie had, 
playing with a big green ball, standing on a platform, jumping barrels. The ad said they had actually been in Memphis, Tennessee, near Abbey last February. But they weren't going to be anywhere close to her for the rest of the year. Abby's heart plummeted as fast as it had soared, but maybe they'd be back next year, and maybe she could go, if. This was the key. She just knew it. Pirelli was so cool. She had to learn how to do what she had seen Angie do. Somehow it had to work out. It just had to. She stood praying desperately to God, wherever God was, to please, please hear her. Have to get hold of this stuff to learn this. Money or no money. Somehow, please, please. Oh! She jumped when she felt a hand on her shoulder. John and Melissa looked quizzically at her. We're ready to check out. Are you buying anything? John asked. Oh, man, I, um... Abby blushed embarrassed about not having the money to buy these two things she wanted so badly. This wasn't going at all well. Now she was embarrassed and ashamed. She looked down at her treasures, mumbling, don't have enough money. How much money would you need, John asked after a questioning glance at Melissa and a quick answering nod back. Um, Abby totaled up the two items and said she would need around $9 more. Another signal passed between the pair. Bring them, John said. We're buying. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> now, you mentioned a character, Angie the Angel. Yes. You know, Abby is a horse lover, and in the beginning of the book, we see Abby in a very typical amateur horse lesson. Abby is injured, as is another girl in this lesson. It's just normal to her she doesn't know there's anything different but when she goes on vacation with her family to North Carolina from the her home of central Tennessee she sees something entirely different we could call it horse whispering and this is something that I do in real life Uh, I'm a certified horse whisperer I study the Pirelli method which is a real thing And it's super, super spiritual, very cool, very useful, and it appeals to just pretty much anybody who is, you know, interested in a bonded relationship with a horse. So when Abby sees this, she is just blown away. She has no idea that you could even do these kinds of things with horses. And so she had already decided seeing Angie play with this horse that she wanted to do the same thing but Abby's family is not wealthy and Abby herself just has pretty much no money and being only 13 she feels very powerless a lot of the time so this is a kind of a key scene for Abby to get onto this path of following her love for horses did you have another excerpt you wanted to share I do all right um, this is a couple of chapters later, and in this chapter, Abby has just arrived in a place she's not sure where she is after another horseback riding accident. This is chapter 13. Friend. Abby stood just past the clump of trees, blinking in the warm morning light. She was dazed. That was understandable, since she had just hit, or er, not hit, Um, where was the horse? She looked around. Where were the shouting riders? Why did the trees look so different, too? 
and the stable had shrunk, or else the changing light made it look smaller. It must be that she just didn't know how it looked. But where was that horse? Had he thrown her and run off? Had the others gone after him? But hadn't that one wrangler been right behind her? She looked around the other side of the trees for Gunsmoke and the wrangler. No sign. Surely she should at least hear some shouting. Nope, nothing. This was way, way too weird. Did she black out and they were all back at the stables? The stables that looked like a house from this angle? Might as well head down there. It'd be just standing up here. She walked past the trees and down the looking different now path. It had become a well-kept walkway rather than the rough, rocky horse path. Gunsmoke's clumps of grass were now plants and flowers at the verges. By the house, someone stooping in the yard glanced up, looked again, seemed surprised, set their trowel down next to a bucket and straightened up, lifted their hand to their ear. Someone wearing strange clothes, not ranch clothes, more like earthen-colored Chinese peasant clothes, loose clothes, a loose stance, a free hand waving at her. I fell off, Abby shouted. The person, apparently a woman or girl, didn't answer, but lifted her watch, lips moving. Still, she smiled. That was something. Abby walked further and cupped her hands to her mouth. Where is everyone? Did the horse come back? The woman smiled again and called, It is okay. Come down. Hmm. She must be Chinese. She had a funny accent. But up closer, she looked a lot like Melissa, maybe part Asian, but also a lot of other things. Abby descended the last slope to the barn, er, house, and approached the woman, girl, whichever. Where is everyone, she repeated. Who are you? I, er, is, are, uh, Dolly, Dolly Puerta, the lady answered. And you, er, what an odd last name, Puerta. I'm Abby, Abby Wise. Wise? Dolly Puerta looked at her for a long moment, as if it was Abby who had the strange last name. Yes, wise. Well, anyway, Mrs. Puerta, uh, Miss Dolly, um, I must have gotten lost. I fell off a horse. I mean, I was going to fall off, and then, uh, well, I lost everyone and the horse. Did you see them? Dolly Puerta held up her watch again, and it seemed to whisper to her. Abby stared at the watch. She knew she was behind the times on iPods and Blackberries and Bluetooths and all that, but she had never heard of a whispering watch. Help let you with all-embracing vision, Dolly said nonsensically. Coming in for now. Her watch whispered again, and she held out her hand to Abby, clearly inviting her inside the little house with a word Abby didn't catch. They stepped through a wooden doorway, past the thick earthen walls, into the cool living room. The ceiling slanted up to a vent that drew air through the open windows and doors. A screen appeared across the doorway, the same kind of screen as on the open windows. Doors led into a bedroom and bathroom. Low walls revealed the kitchen and a couple of other areas Abby couldn't identify. It seemed even more back-to-earth than the coffee shop she had gone to with John and Melissa. Plants, yes, and wood, some decorations but also colored glass for doorknobs and metal shelves with hammer marks and pottery and quilts and weavings for show or maybe for using. I like your house, she said a little guiltily when she realized she'd been peeking more than mother would consider proper. 
I are glad you liking it, Dolly said, smiling and listening to her whispering watch. Could you like, no, would you like something to drink? Oh, I have water back in, back in where? The small house sat where the stables had been. She had ridden up that hill and just now walked down it. Where are we? She blurted out. Would you please sat down? Dolly asked politely. She held out a very pretty multicolored glass of what looked like cool water. Abby accepted the glass and, still standing, sipped from it appreciatively. Her caprice passed a quick inspection for dirt. She apparently hadn't been on gun smoke long enough to get very dirty. She blushed, ducked her head, gingerly sat down, and pretended to look at her chair. Are you all right? Her hostess asked, concerned. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure. I'm not hurt anyway. That's good, but I have to say I'm very confused. You weren't here when I came before. Are your parents home? Uh, is different. Well, then where am I? Dolly took a deep breath and seemed to be deciding what to say. Her almost always whispering watch stayed silent this time. You are where you were before. I'm in the same place I was? Yes, I have belief so. Abby could tell her hostess was worried that this would be unhappy news for Abby, and somehow Abby did not think this was a joke or a lie. Hesitant to make a fool of herself, she asked the hostess to explain. The watch began whispering again. I am not entirely sure what happened, but you have come a long way from where you were. It seemed to Abby that Dolly's English was getting much better by the minute. The whispering watch, no doubt. Some kind of translator she wore while she was weeding. I thought you just said I was where I am before or something, which means I didn't come very far at all. I'm so sorry. I mean, you came a long way in time. How would you call that? I don't know. Yeah, far, I guess. How far do you think? Dolly looked at Abby, again seeming to decide something. Silence from her watch. Dolly was on her own for this one, whatever it was. What year is it when you came? Year? 2007. Why? 2007? In what calendar? What do you mean, what calendar? Abby was beginning to get quite frustrated. Her confusion was growing, not lessening with the discussion. I am so sorry. Do you need to take a break? Break? No, I need to know where I am, where everybody went, that's all. Abby began to change her opinion about Dolly. She'd seemed a fast learner, but now she appeared rather slow. How about we talk about you for a while, Dolly? Abby finally asked. All right, Abby, I will tell you what I see, well, what I can, Dolly said earnestly. I told you my name already, Dolly Puerta, and my age is 18. This is my aunt's house that is now mine. I work um, part-time, and my bliss is to grow the plants, such as you saw on the hill. And where are we now? Are we in North Carolina, or... The watch whispered again on Dolly's wrist. She had propped up her elbow on the arm of the couch, the better to keep the watch by her ear. We are in the uh, area of North Carolina, yes. Abby wasn't sure why her hostess said it like that, but at least she was where she was supposed to be, just not when. 
Well, for me, it's Friday, August 17th, 2007. What, um, what year is it here? Abby's statement set the watch to whispering again. I think you use the Gregorian calendar. So your date translates to Istiklal 17 Kemal 164 BE. You are from this mid-2nd century. Abby felt stupid. She knew there were other calendars in the world, the Chinese New Year and Muslim lunar months and stuff, but to not even know what her own calendar was called, that was just plain pitiful. She hadn't even thought to say she was from 2007 A.D., but Dolly didn't seem to think Abby was stupid. On the contrary, she was smiling as if she'd solved a hard puzzle. Her watch whispered nonstop. Abby was very glad that the little contraption was helping Dolly to help her. Then Dolly looked at her seriously again and said, I can now tell you how far you've traveled, but you may not want to hear. Try me. Pardon? Yes, I would like to hear. Today is Jalal 17 Kamal 864 BE. It's a Saturday this year. You have traveled exactly 700 years into the future. So that's her first experience for time travel. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> it really catches you to want to read more. It's very good. Very good. Oh, good. Thank yeah. you. Yes, feedback has really been wonderful, and I, I worked very hard to, to, to catch the flow and the spirit and the, the angst, you know, because sure. Abby is that 13-year-old. That's why I said growing aware on the front cover. You know, she's that 13-year-old mm. coming of age. So do you have one more to close? I do, if you like. Sure. Now, this one I just worked up to read at a conference here at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute in Eloy, Arizona. I wanted to read something of Abby's visit to the school, essentially the junior high school of that golden age. And uh, I found that through the scene that I wanted to read was too long for their time constraints. So if you're all right with it, what I'm going to read is about a seven-and-a-half-minute condensation of a scene in which Abby is in a class in junior high or middle school. I'm just going to go ahead and read my introduction as well. Over the last 30 years, I've taught many subjects, such as sewing, natural childbirth, art, reading, and natural horsemanship. I'm also a dedicated, lifelong learner, so I have strong opinions about both learning and teaching. I used all of that in writing my novel, Abby Wise Away. When Abby visits Airden, my name for that golden age, she attends several classes in the junior high school with a new friend, Petra. Here is one class much condensed from the version in the book. Petra led Abby to the next class, which was on courtesy. Abby had figured this would be a very dull class, but the students seemed as eager and willing to come to this one as they had to the last one. Please bring your chairs into a circle, invited Ms. Reed, the freckled teacher with long, honey-colored dreadlocks framing a brightly smiling, mocha-colored face. The room was very bare except the ceiling, which featured a large, painted green tree with golden fruit. Words painted in every fruit formed flowing sentences. 
Petra lifted her wrist computer towards it. Abby admired the awe-inspiring artwork as she listened to her earbud computer. Quote, The learned of the day must direct the people to acquire those branches of knowledge which are of use, that both the learned themselves and the generality of mankind may derive benefits therefrom. Such academic pursuits as begin and end in words alone have never been and will never be of any worth, end quote. Welcome to courtesy, Ms. Reed said when all the students were settled in a circle. You have been well prepared for this day, I expect. Let's outline for our guest, Abby, how your past education has prepared you to learn about courtesy, the prince of virtues. A student raised her hand and was recognized. She said the progression of subjects during her earlier years, starting with basic manners, progressing through sharing, social needs, and virtues, the ongoing guidance of her family, and in fact the influence of everybody in her town had prepared her to focus this year on courtesy. Ah, beautifully expounded, Ms. Reed beamed. One merit, a spark formed in the class computer and arced towards the girl, dissolving into singing birds and the scent of ocean. Computer, please, what's with the merits in these classes? Abby asked her earbud mentally. The earbud replied, also silently. The Baha'i writings say, quote, Vie ye with each other in the service of God and of his cause, end quote. Students can practice for this by doing well in school, so every student tries their best to do a good job. One way students can gain merits is to thoughtfully answer questions in class. Merits are redeemed at the end of the term. Whoa, they rewarded students for school? Bonega! This was definitely heaven on earth. But a little voice in her head popped up. If they did not like school, no amount of money or anything else could bribe them into changing their bad feelings about it. Hmm, was this the little voice, that divine bit that Petra said we all have inside? Double Bonega. Let us start by discussing two things, Ms. Reed went on. First, situations in which you feel you'd like help being more courteous. The class computer recorded and displayed all the students' contributions. There were a good many, ranging from having to deliver bad news to someone, to standing up for their rights, to losing their patience. When the suggestions ceased, Ms. Reed then asked for situations in which you wish others had been more courteous. Abby thought this might become a gripe session on how rude others were. Certainly it would have if you'd asked that question of her 21st century schoolmates. But these students were much more reserved, removing all names or blame, and many even apologized before contributing their suggestion. It was interesting, though, how many of them had been hurt by one thoughtless comment or felt unheard when sharing something deep. It caused Abby to reflect on what hurt others. And even with the tremendous time gap, she saw that she was not so different from these model human beings. They, like she, struggled to be the best they could be despite missteps or slights from their friends and families. I'm so pleased with the curriculum you have just helped me form, Ms. Reed said, smiling warmly around the circle. Thank you. We will cover courtesy on the computer, when writing, when speaking to individuals or in front of groups, on shows, when delivering bad news, when stressed, and more with real-life practice. Home run number two. Students wrote the curriculum here, and it seemed they'd be writing letters, giving speeches, even going on TV to practice it. 
Amazing. Abby could have supplied them with endless examples of bad interchanges from her time. Ms. Reed had them pair off and role-play the first assignment, being sure to discuss any feelings of anger or other difficult emotions that were relevant to the situation. Emotions are markers pointing to something that needs your attention, she explained. They can be like well-trained horses that carry you to new and useful places, which your mind and heart can explore together. Resist the temptation to let your emotions drag your mind away like wild horses on a rampage. Let's work together to train your horses to partner you well. Now, lest we think that we always need to be polite to everybody at all times, let me offer a couple of exceptions for your consideration. One is when we encounter someone who's truly malevolent against other people, which happens rarely, but for which we should still be prepared. The other is the famous example of Abdu'l-Bahá and the coach driver in Egypt when he showed us how to stay centered and firm under all conditions. After the quotes were read and discussed, with appropriate merits brightening the students' efforts, a pleasant bell chimed. Your homework will be to consider how you might use this information in a situation you've encountered or could encounter. There is no minimum or maximum length. I'll be looking for depth of analysis. Dictated or filmed reports are fine. Do next class. Everybody tidied up, put the chairs back, and exited the room with polite goodbyes. Abby could see how useful it would be to think about difficult situations ahead of time and practice for them. No wonder everyone she'd met in Airden was so polite and paid such close attention to everything she said. They thought it was important enough to put it in the school curriculum and not just in a debate or media class. No, courtesy class would still include those skills but would emphasize how well it was done, who was uplifted, whose hearts were touched, and whose honor was upheld in the process. Very nice. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, Lisa, if someone wants to find your book, where could they get get a hold of it? Pretty much everywhere. It's in local bookstores, national bookstores. It's online, Amazon, worldwide. It's available as a Kindle and as a Nook. Special Ideas is my semi-exclusive distributor, so it's available through him as a specialty bookstore. How does one contact Special Ideas? Special Ideas website, I should have that. If you sure. do a web search, Special Ideas Baha'i, baha'iresources.com. If somebody would like an inscribed copy, they can contact me directly. Uh, I'm easy to reach. I have a website, but it's not under my name. It's under Abby's name. So <laughs> it's Abby Wise with a Z. AbbyWiseBooks.com is my website. Uh, and I would love for people to contact me on Facebook. So there's a fan page. Abby Wise with a Z Books is the fan page. And then there's a personal page, just Abby Wise. So if somebody would like to, for me to inscribe their copy, they can contact me, and I can sell them a book directly. If they want to buy it from someplace else, but they'd still like it inscribed to them, contact me, and I can send them an inscribed, like a, a label that they can put in the front of their book. And I'm very interested in feedback, especially from the youth, because I wrote this book for several different audiences, but especially Baha'i youth, and 
youth who are seeking like I was. Obviously, I have a great identification, a great fondness for teens who are in that situation in life. And so I'm hoping to provide them with something they can use, and I would love to hear it if they care to contact me. Well, that's right. You started your search when you were 13. You said that. I surely did. Yeah. Uh-huh. And to answer a question you didn't ask, yes, Abby is largely based on myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for volunteering that. <laughs> no problem. And Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And perhaps we can talk again when the first sequel comes out. Absolutely. We're looking forward Great. to it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa Bradley author of the novel Abby Wise, Away. You can find Abby Wise, Away at Amazon.com as well as on the Kindle and the Nook. Lisa's website is www.abbywisebooks.com. The Facebook fan page for the book is Abby Wise Books, and the book has a Facebook personal page with the name Abby Wise. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.